0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Tuesday, May the 2nd, 2023, new month. Last month was a particularly troubling one in America's racial history, although it seems as if every month is troubling. There was the story of a 16-year-old who knocked on somebody's door by accident, an African-American boy who got shot by an 84-year-old. They never spoke to one another. Um, it seems, as at least at this point, as if it was purely racial profiling. The white 84-year-old was terrified or scared or just hated black people and shot this young man. Um his uh, attorney suggests that his recovery is a miracle um, he 's getting better every day fortunately, and he 's now become a minor celebrity he just got in, invited to alicia keys 's uh concert. But in terms of minor miracles and getting better every day it doesn 't seem as if uh this story is suggesting that america 's racial history is getting much better. There's certainly no miracles here. One man who's done a great deal of thinking about America's complicated racial history is my guest today, John Blake. He is uh, an enterprise writer and producer at CNN and has a new book out, remarkable new book, a memoir about his uh, complicated racial history, more than I imagined what a black man discovered about the white mother <laughs> He never knew. He did actually end up knowing her. That's what the book is about. And he's joining us from Atlanta, where he lives and works. John, um, this Yarl story, uh, uh, Ralph Yarl's story, it just is so horrifying, uh, particularly for the outside world. I remember when it broke, it was all over the foreign media. The BBC, for example, led with it. What does it tell us about America? (laughs) Uh,
1: I think what it tells us is that uh, if you really want to understand America, you have to understand um, our obsession with guns. And you can't really understand a lot of people's obsession with guns without looking at the racial history in this country. And, you know, uh, Mr. Carl's uh, ethnicity, his race is a factor in his... uh, I, I think it's, it's a factor in his shooting. If you're a young black man, if you're any black man and you're knocking on a stranger's door, if you're just walking down the street, anything can happen to you. But I think what happened to him also has also happened to some white people in, in this country recently. People. Uh, there was a, a, a white woman who I think she went into the wrong driveway. She was shot.
0: Yeah, that, that story broke. The same, I think that was in New Hampshire the story or Maine. It broke at the same time as as, as the Carl story, the yall story. Yeah.
1: yeah, so it's there's a racial dimension to our obsession with guns, but it's it's beyond race too. Uh, it's and I, I think one of the things we've got to be concerned about is that for our, for a lot of our country's history, we've attracted some of the the best and brightest immigrants. But why are people going to want to come live here or stay here and bring their talents here if? there's such a state of fear just going out in public and worried if you're going to get shot.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Carol Anderson. She teaches at Emory. In, oh, yes, know, she's a friend of mine. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. a friend of mine yeah. too, and she's been on the show a few times, and her latest book is about the the racial component of, um, of the right, uh, the supposed mm-hmm. right to uh, arm oneself on gun control. So, yeah, uh, she's a wonderful writer and a a wonderful person. She's she's a good friend. She's appeared on the show many times before. Uh, John, tell me about this book uh, more than I imagined. What a black man discovered about the white mother he never knew. I half joked earlier about America never getting, uh, America needing perhaps a miracle to heal itself and America isn't getting better every day. Is this a book about a kind of, minor miracle in a sense?
1: Yeah, I think it's a very uh, apt way to describe it because what happened in my life and what is still happening is a minor miracle. And part of what I contend is that it shouldn't be a minor miracle and that uh, that there are a lot of stories out there like this that we just don't know about. But to briefly describe my story, uh, I grew up in a very infamous neighborhood in West West Baltimore, Maryland. And it's infamous because of primarily two reasons. One it's the setting for a very uh, well-known HBO series called The Wire, which is like a cult favorite. But it's also the setting for one of the worst uh, violent protests over race that we've had in, in our country's history. Uh, in 2015, the country, the city went up in flames when a young Black man named Freddie Gray died in police custody. Freddie Gray lived in a neighborhood I grew up in. So my neighborhood has become this like, symbol of how intractable racism seems to be in this country. So I grew up in this world and I grew up with a white mom, but I never knew her when she vanished from my life, not long after I was born. No one told me why she disappeared. I didn't know what she looked like, uh, the sound of her voice or anything. All I was told was this, your mother's name is Shirley. She's white and her family hates black people. And so my story is about my quest to find out what happened to her and to reconnect with this white family and to find a way to accept people that didn't accept me.
0: John, it seems to me that the miracle in America is getting beyond race. And in a sense, this is a story about getting beyond race, because you are yourself personally beyond race. There's lots of theorists on race who argue that it's a construction. It never really existed. Where do you stand on this? And what did your story, how did it inform you about your racial or lack of racial identity?
1: Yeah, I I found in my story that as I began to try to reconnect with my white family members, that the thing that kind of ironically helped us the most is when we came together to not talk about race. Uh, There's a belief among some people is that the way you deal with racism is to get white people and and people of color together to have a national conversation of race, to talk about race. And I think that has some value. But what I've discovered in my personal life is something that is backed up by a psychologist I talk about in my book, a guy named Gordon Allport, who talks about- He teaches at
0: Harvard, right?
1: Yeah, and he died in 67. psychologist,
0: Gordon W. Allport.
1: Right. He wrote this incredible book called The Nature of Prejudice. And he uh, popularized this term called contact theory. And what he says in contact theory is that there is no mystery about what reduces racial prejudice. Racism might seem to be something that, you know, you can't deal with, it can't be conquered. He said, no, it's not. We have plenty of social science to back it up. But what you do is you get together people of different races. And the ironic thing is that when you get them together for a larger common purpose that goes beyond race, where they're not talking about race all the time, that that can work the magic. Now, that might sound abstract, but think of sports movies. So there's a movie called Remember the Titans that's popular in the U.S. with Denzel Washington. Sports movies, you have... A, you know, a sports team that's divided by race, but once they get together to, you know, play for the championship, all those racial prejudices evaporate. The military has the same kind of dynamic. Yeah. People go into the military. And that's what I found out in my family. When we got together to try to be a family over something larger than race, that created those conditions for racial transformation. Oh, and I want to address the question about race. I, I do it's I, I do think um ultimately we have to get beyond race, understand that, you know, race was a category that was created. It's a recent invention. It was created pretty much to divide and exploit people. I mean, the whole concept of race is pretty new. Um, so I think as more people get knowledge of that, I think that could potentially
0: help. Yeah. It's interesting. We had a show yesterday with Kevin Kelly, a a futurist out here in, on the West coast. Um, And he has a new book out giving advice to younger people about how to live well, how to live excellently. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he suggests in the book is that children have to learn their family history and have pride in that. And I guess in a sense, that's what this book is about. You coming to terms with, not just coming to terms with your maybe not so unusual family history, but uh, a history that surprised you at least. Uh, and not just coming to terms with it, but having pride in it, having pride on with with both sides of the family.
1: Yeah, that's another good description. It was very difficult initially for me because the white side of my family rejected me because my father's black. Um, they wanted nothing to do with me. Um, and there were instances of physical violence where white members of my family attacked my father, had him arrested. Uh, there was a lot of hostility I had to overcome. And to learn how to call these people my family was very difficult. But one of the things that helped me as I got to know them is that I began to see that something that Allport talked about, and that is that a lot of racism is something that is caught rather than being taught, meaning a lot of people absorb their racial attitudes and they don't even really critically think about it. They grow up in environments where everybody thinks this way. And that happened to the white members of my family. And I had to learn how to not define them by their worst acts. And one of the things also that surprised me is that these same people who could use the N-word against my father, who could act in racist ways toward me, were also capable of like staggering acts of generosity, grace. Uh, one of the things I say in my book is that they taught me lessons in empathy and forgiveness, and I
0: never saw that coming. And and that gives me a lot of hope. You mentioned that you grew up in this notorious part of Baltimore where Freddie Gray was killed, where there were riots, where The Wire is based. We have an amazing photo of it from CNN uh, from one of your pieces, a very uh, moody photo, shall we say. Yeah. What well, were the logistics, uh John? How how did your 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 mother was clearly or is a remarkable woman, highly spirited, Roman Catholic, enormously independent, rebellious. How did your parents meet? And, and, and how close did they live? Were they also part of this neighborhood of Baltimore or were they in another bit?
1: They lived exactly because I I I I I kind of measured the distance. They lived exactly 4.2 miles apart, but it, 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 it might have well been another universe in that time. They met in 1963 in a very heavily segregated Baltimore to go that four miles from my father's Black neighborhood to my mother's white neighborhood. If you were Black, you were literally taking your life in your hands because that neighborhood that my mom lived was working class, white, Irish, Catholic. Black people didn't go there. In fact, when my father when on one of his first dates with my mom. He asked a cab driver to drive him to her neighborhood. He wouldn't even take my father there because he didn't want to risk it. So, but they met at a hospital And my father was a merchant seaman, but in his spare time when he was home, he would take odd jobs and he worked in the hospital. And he saw my mom in the cafeteria and he asked her out for a date. And she said, yes. And that sounds so simple today, but in those days, interracial marriage was literally illegal in much of the country and my father was really taking his life in his hand and my mother was to find her family and her whole community so it was a they were both incredibly brave people
0: the the tragedy of all this i mean there are obviously multiple tragedies here john but the the political tragedy is that as you say these two neighborhoods the white working class and the black working class neighborhoods they were four miles apart but they might have been in different universes and yet These people all should have shared the same political concerns. They were both, they're all part of the working class. They had similar jobs. Right. And yet they couldn't agree on anything. We've done a number of shows on the history of American populism with uh, some people like I've got Michael Lind actually on the show uh, tomorrow. um, Thomas Frank, they all argue that the real, the real way to, Political, for political justice in America is some sort of alliance of white and black working class. Do you write or think about this in the book? And, and, and yes. what does your story tell us about this potential yeah. alliance?
1: Yes, in, in depth. Uh, I really believe that. Um, this story has really, you know, when I look at my life, um, it forced me to really think about segregation. Why did, does it, did it exist why does it still persist in its modern forms? And I think one of the primary reasons is a deliberate strategy to keep white and non white people apart. And because if you keep them apart, they don't realize that they share some of the many of the same issues, the same problems, and they don't see their common humanity. And that's why when I talk in the book, I talk about something with, which um, one scholar calls radical integration, meaning what I mean is that. I think one of the ways you address racism is that there's one element, elemental lesson that we can't forget, and that is that facts don't change people, relationships do. And what I mean by that is that you need people in the same physical spaces, in community, in relationships, white and black, working class people, all sorts of people, for them to see their common humanity for change to come about. Um, I think that's one of the tools that we've forgotten, but I just, I've just seen it in my life, the things that really changed me and enabled me to connect with the white members of my family and enabled them to connect with me came through relationship and community. We couldn't read a book. We couldn't go to a diversity panel or workshop. That wouldn't have worked. It had to be proximity relationship over a period of time.
0: We've had some shows, uh, John, on the role of anger, particularly Mm -hmm. in the African-American community did one with Maisha Cherry who thinks that anger is central. Others, like Randall Kennedy, who teaches at Harvard, think that we need to get beyond, or African Americans need to get beyond anger and focus on reason. Your narrative is one where you overcame your own anger. In the book, you suggest that you were a typically angry teenager, and your own particular story enabled you to overcome that anger. Tell me a little bit about that and why you think perhaps... This might be a model to get beyond anger, both white anger and black anger.
1: Well, I'm going to say this about anger. Uh, I think there, there are instances where it's healthy to be angry as a human being. I think as a black person, if I see George Floyd being slowly strangled on video, I should be angry. I should be angry over things like voter suppression. What I talked about in my book is that when anger consumes you, when it morphs into hatred, where you start to generalize about like all white people. And that's what happened to me as a young person. I grew up with this hostility toward all white people. I was so angry, not just at my mother's family's rejection, but about growing up in poverty, seeing what was happening in my neighborhood. And one of the things that helped me when I met my my mother's family, met her, is that it enabled me to get over that anger that had morphed into hatred. So I think anger is important. But I don't think it should consume us, and I don't think it should prevent us from making alliances with white people and other people. to Understand, there are plenty of well-meaning white people out there. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question. But like I said, anger is healthy at some point, but not when it comes into it becomes into hate.
0: Was there a, or is there a generational quality to this? Was one of the the ways to reconcile discovering. White kids, boys or girls of your own age, cousins uh, that allowed you to escape, perhaps the racial hostilities of your parents' generation. Or do you think that all this nonsense has been passed down from generation to generation? Can you, can you help help me understand your question? I want to make sure I answer it correctly. Is there a, my question? Is did you discover? when you learned about your white family, white cousins of your own age, teenagers, young people who perhaps like you were beginning to escape the stereotypes of your parents' generation. Yeah. I mean, um,
1: as I began to meet other members of my family, what happened is that uh there was this process that occurred that one person calls mutual transformation. So as I learned more about them and I got to see them as human beings and not as like categories, like white people that changed me, but it also changed them. And I'll give you an example. Um, I have a, my mother has a sister who we didn't meet until when I say we, me and my younger brother didn't meet until we were in our mid twenties. And, um, she didn't want anything to do with us. And this was, is on Mary, she wanted, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, because of race. And I remember when I first met her, I wanted her to offer me an apology. And 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 she didn't. And and so for a long time, I kept her at a distance. I wouldn't open her letters. And then one day I uh, I, I talk about it and it's something I've written for CNN. Right, and uh, here we have I, an
0: image for people just listening of, of the letters, the unopened. well, then now they're open, but they were previously, yeah, 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 from your aunt Mary,
1: yeah. So, what happened, um, is that briefly, uh, I found myself, I went to a store one day and I found myself I, I racially profiled a black salesman, meaning was I, a paint I thought store, right?
0: Was- of all places, a paint store, yeah,
1: symbolic, yeah, yeah, sort all of, of a
0: metaphor for yeah. all this stuff,
1: right? Right, I, I. I assumed that this white uh, salesman who was selling paint was more confident than the black one. And as soon as I realized I'd done that, I had immediate compassion for my Aunt Mary and I went home and I opened all these letters that she had sent me over the years and I realized that she had changed, that she was apologizing for her absence from my life. She was, she was admitting that race was a factor and it gave me this whole other side of her that I had never seen. And our relationship just blossomed. And it got to the point now that she's, she's somebody that's very dear to me. I mean, we're family.
0: Right, and here I, we have I a think, photo of her and you and your wife.
1: Yeah, right. I think it's really important to tell these stories. I, I tell people, if you really believe that we have to have, that we're gonna make it as a diverse democracy, we have to become better storytellers you know, people aren't just driven by, you know, reason and emotion and stats. We have to tell stories that show people coming together because I, my sense is as a journalist, I've been writing about race for like 25 years. My sense right now is that there are a lot of Americans now who are starting to believe that racism is a permanent inescapable part of, of, this, of this country, that we can't escape it, that we can't transcend it. And I think that's incredibly dangerous. And we had to tell stories. No, we can. And this is my story is part of that.
0: Your story is in some ways uplifting, in other ways, very sad, particularly about your mother, um, a very spirited Mm -hmm. young woman, a very brave young woman, a Roman Catholic, nonconformist, someone who took risks and stood up to her own family. Mm -hmm. Uh, You suggest in the book that you began to understand when you that she was institutionalized and as badly treated in the system as many black people. Why is the the fate, the institutional fate of your mother, what did did it teach you about how both whites and blacks are are sharing a common history in America in some ways?
1: My mom, institutionalization taught me two things. One was you might
0: explain what happened to her.
1: Okay, so this is a major part of the book. Uh, so Don't I guess give I'm because
0: we want people to read the book, but nonetheless, give us a little yeah. hint. But but, I, but I've
1: talked about some of this publicly. So uh, when I first met my mom um, at 17, when my father said, "Hey, do you want to meet her?" and it was this shock meeting because I didn't even know she was alive. The the place where I met her was in a mental institution. Um, no one in my family told me that she had. Uh, schizophrenia, which is a very severe form of mental illness, we were just driven out to this mental institution, steered into a room, and said, "Here's your mom," and she came out and greeted us, and that was an incredible meeting that I go into and describe it in vivid detail. But wanted to answer your question, one of the first things that helped me when I met her, you know, besides the simple fact of knowing my mom, is that when I was in that mental institution, and it's a very notorious place, it was a place called Crownsville. They used to mistreat people, chain them to beds, subject uh, patients to uh, medical experiments without their consent. When I realized seeing my mom that she had been in this place for most of my life, I began to, re- something hit me. I said, I have never seen a Black person suffer like that. It was the first time that I began to feel empathy for a white person. I had never felt that before because in my world, white people didn't suffer like us, they didn't know what it meant to be treated with contempt or with uh, brutality or discriminated against because you were born a certain way. My mom showed me in that instant that they're all white people who suffer like that. So it taught me empathy for white people in a way that nothing else could have, just to see her and to realize she had been living that way. The second long-term effect of meeting her and seeing her way is that I realized though that she had incredible misfortune in her life, incredible suffering that she did something that was so incredible that the fact that in the mid sixties, when it was illegal, that she was willing to see my father and to have two black sons, that people like her were part of this vanguard of Americans before interracial marriage was a norm. When it was like taboo, they said, we're not going to wait for judges to decide. We're not going to wait for politicians to decide. This is what we believe. Love is love. People are people. And they, They loved one another. They took chances. They faced persecution and had children. And they created this new norm where where interracial marriage and biracial children are now so commonplace. And I don't think people, easy for people to take it for granted today when we see so many interracial couples, when we see Obama, Kamala Harris, like how did this shift take place? Well, it was because in part because of people like my mom who made it happen. And so she also showed me That power, ordinary people have tremendous power to make change. Even somebody like her, who on the surface had no power.
0: Here we have a photo of you uh, with your dad and your father. You referred earlier to yourself or to to your mom having two black children, but they're not. You're not black. Is that? I mean, you're biracial. I mean, you could just as as equally call you white. (laughs) Right.
1: If you, if you didn't understand the political or the history of this country, you maybe perhaps you can. What I tell people is this, that in a sense, people ask you, how did you define yourself? I, I consider my identity almost like, you know, you hear about gender fluidity. Mm. I consider it like racial fluidity. There are different layers to it. If I am stopped by a police officer at 12 o'clock at night, they don't care who my mother is. I'm seen as a black man. I understand that. And believe me, the hate mail I've received at CNN because some of the articles, they don't see me as biracial. I'm a black man. So I'm I'm, I'm accepting of that reality. So in some instances, again, I will say that I identify as a black man because I grew up in that culture. However, my father used to tell me this. He said, never deny your mother. And so I will also tell people, yes, I'm biracial. My mother is white. But ultimately, how I define myself is not by race, because as we said earlier, race is this artificial construct. I define myself by my faith. You know, I'm, I consider myself a Christian. That's who I essentially am. Then everything else comes after that.
0: Yeah, maybe we can mention MLK. You're, of course, in Atlanta and his message. I'm also mm-hmm. curious, uh, John. I guess when something happens, you take it for granted as being inevitable. But was it conceivable that your mom would have taken you and your brother and brought them up? Or was that? inconceivable could she have left baltimore could she have gone to live somewhere else or was it a reflection of her own uh, mental instability her own uh, illness
1: no i don't think she could have could have raised this by herself uh i mean first of all if she if she had everything together like mentally and emotionally it would have been extremely difficult for a young white mom raising two black boys in that time because Just a brief period when she dated my father, they went through hell. The kind of experiences that they had that my father told me about later were very difficult. So add to that the mental challenges that she faced, I don't think she could have done it. And that's why when I met her, I didn't feel any resentment or any anger toward her. I immediately knew when I saw her, uh, this is the reason why. This is the reason why you you couldn't be there for us.
0: You've suggested that this is... Uh, this is the, the one story you didn't know how to tell. And there's one piece of the story right. that's particularly intriguing. You were five, you said, when you were abducted. What happened when you were five? Or what do you imagine happened?
1: It was a very strange experience. It's not quite the strangest in the book. Um, And I'll go back to that. But I have a very strong memory when I was a kid, uh, when I was growing up with my my father's family, which is all black and it's all black neighborhood of a white couple just taking me one afternoon, just grabbing me, not in a, a aggressive or way or, but just taking me away from my family and leading me to a park and flying a kite with me uh, and spending the afternoon with me. And I, I remember that so well and so vividly. And, um, the reason I told that story is that because I realized even at a young age, even at four or five, when I couldn't really understand why my mother wasn't there, I knew something elemental was missing in my life. As I said in the book, I came into the world with half my identity amputated, and I felt like that, that so-called abduction was my desire to be reunited, to feel whole with this family that didn't know me and didn't want me. And as far as whether it happened or not, I don't still don't know to this day. But there were other experiences uh, where white members of my family contacted me that were much stranger than that, that I talk about in the book. But yeah, that was a, an incredible experience. Yeah, and the way you
0: describe it, uh, it was one of the most beautiful days of my childhood, or imaginary days, childhood ch- children can dream. Yeah. What about your father? He- Oh wow! There's something heroic about him Um, as someone who brought two boys up. Was he away all the time? You said he was a merchant seaman. I mean, what happens when he was away? Who brought you up?
1: We stayed in uh, foster homes for most of my childhood. And on the weekends, we had an aunt, my father's uh, younger sister, who raised us. So she spent Saturday and Sunday with us. So she was a very good mom. She was the one who went up to school to get, check my grades, took us to the doctor. She encouraged me to read books and she was incredibly important. She's like, you know, I've heard people say that sometimes all a kid needs is that one person to believe in them. And she was that one person that believed in me and my brother. And I, 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 she was like this lighthouse in a sea of chaos. She really helped us through. But my father spent most of the time away at sea like eight months or so out of the year. And uh, then he would come back, and we would spend time with him. And he was a, uh, as you can imagine, a black man who would uh, <laughs> openly date a, a young white woman in the mid '60s. He was a very courageous man, and he's a very colorful character. And uh, he's he, he he was something,
0: um, <laughs> yeah. And what about your brother? What does he do now?
1: He is a manager at a warehouse in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, you know as as people could imagine, we're very close because we went through a lot together and um, yeah, so we're very close and uh, yeah.
0: Finally, John, I mean, it's a wonderful story and congratulations on the book. I think it's going to be one of the big books of the year, more than I imagined. Um, you had an interesting piece in CNN about right. uh, the Floyd murder and, and what it tells you. You still remain, it seems to me rather pessimistic about race in America. What, what's your take in leaving aside the 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 all story there'll probably be other y'all kinds of stories this month what's your broader take in 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 early May 2023 on race in America and and and, and broadly and particularly in, ter- in the context of your own story in this book what do we need to do to get beyond it
1: well I, I wouldn't quite say um. I'm pessimistic because uh, I have a lot of hope. I mean, if my family can heal from some of the same some of the divisions we had, I know others can. And if people can change, so can a country. But to answer your question, um, I, think, I think we have to remember that there are a lot of things that have changed that we never thought would change and that we have to not get, give in to pessimism and to believe that racism is permanent but more specifically what i said in that piece that you just cited is that if we're going to have that kind of transformational change that we need we have to we have to have some form of renewed attention to racial integration we can't be so racially segregated there's a kind of change that happens when people are physically together in communities and relationships that can't be replicated through protest and policies i'm not saying it can replace protest and policy i'm saying this is it's an indispensable part of fighting racism. And I think we've forgotten that. And that's what the George Floyd protest didn't have. All these white people joined black people to protest, but then they went back to their all-white neighborhoods and their all-white schools. That's not enough.